Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, clinical psychologist and child and adolescent psychotherapist. Welcome to Talking Child Development, the podcast of the Association of Child and Family Development in Melbourne, Australia. The association is a not-for-profit organisation that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to other professionals and the wider community. In these podcasts, we will be going a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child, adolescent and family life. We want to get away from a focus that's purely behavioural and quick fix based to delve more deeply into issues and ask questions about why things happen in families the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au as well as where you can also obtain the references mentioned here. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Kirsten Meyer, who leads a team of creative arts therapists and counsellors in a community-based organisation in Melbourne, working with children, young people and their carers who have experienced family violence. Kirsten is a South African-born, UK-trained drama therapist with over 20 years' experience that spans South Africa and Australia. She has worked in clinical, educational and community settings with a particular interest in children and young people, understanding their experience within their psychosocial and political contexts. In 2002, she co-founded the Zakini Arts Therapy Foundation in South Africa with the aim of working collaboratively across arts therapy modalities and within various communities. Her PhD, completed in Australia, focused on how the arts can be used to enhance the capacity of care workers to respond to children and young people. Kirsten has applied her experience in developing curricula and has taught on various higher education programs. Welcome, Kirsten. I'd like to start with hearing about the children and youth counselling service you lead that offers individual counselling and therapeutic groups for children and young people who have experienced family violence. Can I ask how the children and young people are referred and are their parents or immediate caregivers referred as well? Thanks, Ruth, and thanks for the opportunity to be part of your podcast series. It's nice to be here. So before I begin, just a notary language, I guess, in the sector within which I work and family violence, um, you will hear me referring to victim survivor and person who uses violence. Um, And while not always, but most victim survivors are women and mothers. And so I will refer, I will speak to use that language. And um, most people who use violence um, are men and fathers. because family violence is understood to be a um, B2B driven by gender inequality. So I'll speak in that way, but also know when I speak, I acknowledge that family violence does happen across all genders and between different family members. So referrals come from many places, Ruth. We get referrals from child protection, from the Royal Children's Hospital, from family services, from family violence specialist organizations. Um, Some people um, are self-referred. Uh, family violence refuges, um, internally from our case managers working with mothers who have left violent um, relationships as well. And part of the um, of our eligibility criteria is that parents are able to be part of the process as much as possible. What this means is that we recognize that the child's relational world needs attending to in order to understand what they've experienced. 
um, and how they have understood those experiences, as well as offer up opportunities for relational repair. So we recognize, I guess, first and foremost, that the child's parent um, is the most important person in the child's recovery. Yeah. And um, is there a particular therapeutic approach you and your colleagues use in working with children who have experienced family violence or been witness to it? Might this be different from working um, with children and young people in, in other clinical settings? Yes and no. I, th- I suppose we work we work with a number of approaches I imagine you would see in any clinical setting, working with children in trauma, you know, working with kind of trauma-informed, trauma-responsive approaches, attachment relational, family systems, strengths-based. What might be different in our work is that um, we work with a very specific lens or, or approach around family violence. Um, and then, of course, the art therapies, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk to a bit later. So in terms of a family violence therapeutic approach or lens, we hold in mind the, the, the femis- feminist understanding that the drivers of family violence are gendered. And so in our, wo- in our work, there is always um, a particular pattern of power and control that has been um, recognized So within the relationship between the parents. So that's there. Um, either yeah, between the parents or between different family members, usually father and mother. And that pattern we recognize as it doesn't just go away. So people's relation, that, that kind of power and control that, that exists that then, you know, that, that defines family violence continues. And when they're children in the middle, um, yeah, they're very real risks. So working in family violence means you are always working to mitigate against or to safety plan or understand the risks of lethality so it's quite kind of yeah it's 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 at that end of end of the work so mm. when we're working i guess we're holding psychological risk as well but but a lot of the time we're having to hold children's safety you know from from being killed um in mind as well as their parent and i think understanding those patterns and what that looks like is something that we um, I think that we offer that's that might be different um, on top of the usual, I guess, trauma-based um, kind of work. So working therapeutically in that way means helping children and mothers to speak the unspeakable very often and focus on what happened while at the same time, I guess, promoting safety and, and hope. Um, so we spend a lot of time naming what's happened because often that's just not being able to to have been said, and they might not be able to say it initially, but we might name it for them and then make the links, particularly for the parents, between about, you know, the possible links, I guess, and the meaning making between behaviors um, and what might be happening for the child. And importantly, I think understanding that family violence, particularly when it's father and mother, one of the, the greatest kind of ways of controlling or hurting the parent is to the the mother is to attack that attachment between mother and child so that is undermined and that is purposefully or unconsciously or consciously um hurt and that's the work that we hold in mind that that that's what the you know that's what the parent and the mother and child come to our service um yeah having had experienced we don't trash the father, and I want to name mm-hmm. that up front. We don't work to do that at all. We recognize that the children are um, 
are really in the middle and we recognize that the children have the right to love their father and the person that's hurt them, but it makes the work that much more, it just makes it more hard to hold, um, holding those difficult feelings, managing the ambiguous loss and the other losses, um, and that the child's loyalty and the split loyalty and the, just the difficulty of that. And often, often the victim survivor, the mother wanting, you know, wanting us to, I guess, ally with her more because she's felt, felt so hurt. So it's, it's really, really hard work, but holding, having that lens and understanding also her experiences and what she might have experienced helps us to, to come with it at a very compassionate, I guess, um, with a lot of empathy for, for all involved. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, that, that, that actually, you've, you've really answered the next question so uh, in such an articulate way, because uh, the next, my next question is that, um, that I think it would be helpful for people to understand the short and longer term impact of family violence on children and young people. Um, and I, I wondered if there were any particular aspects of the of the impact of family violence on children's development that you've been st struck by and that all of us need to be more aware of. And I noticed that you make a very important point, which is that some of the father's um, attack on the mother is connected with undermining the attachment between the mother and the child, which is a kind of fundamental life bond. I mean, it, nothing could be more challenging and desperate, really. And of course, once that gets damaged, it in, inevitably has an impact on the child's development. But I wonder if you're able to say a bit more about that, but also your own views about um, what we, what you think we in, in the sort of general community need to know more about in terms of the short and longer term impact of family violence on children and young people. Yeah, um, and it is interesting that attack on the attachment because when you look at, you know, if you look at all the evidence and you look at the um, evidence-based risk factors that people talk about in family violence, one of the biggest, often the kind of family violence will start to emerge when, when the mother is pregnant because suddenly her world is expanding and somebody else is coming into the world. And um, yeah, and suddenly the person who uses violence, that's just something that's, yeah, he just wants to control that even more. And that's where often um, the violence starts. So these children, many of them are, are kind of born, you know, before they're even born, they're kind of, you know, they're born into and they've ever experienced, yeah, this, um, yeah, this abuse from, from, yeah, from conception. Um, I think what's also interesting, Ruth, is how many children come to our service have already received a diagnosis of ASD or ADHD. And I often wonder if sometimes those symptoms of kind of the complex trauma have been missed or misunderstood or, or misplaced. Um, so I think you've spoken about this in other podcasts before around, you know, how parents just wanting to fix the child and wanting the diagnosis and wanting it just to kind of get better. But really finding it hard to sit and really kind of be part of the process and understand what's what's kind of happened. And I think the guilt and the shame is such a big thing yes. that parents bring. And I think also children. And I think in terms of longer yes. impacts, the guilt and shame that children yes. hold and feel just plays out in, in so many ways. Um, our three top concerning behaviors that come in on our referral forms, parents will talk about fears and worries. Their children have fears and worries. Their children 
have aggressive behaviors. Everybody kind of highlights that. And often I think what gets missed is the overcompliant child, which is, is equally um, concerning, and also separation anxiety. So I think, you know, the usual the usual impacts, I guess, that, you know, the typical impacts of children experiencing difficulty regulating their emotions, um, having anger, anxiety, sadness, grief, rejection, guilt, shame, confusion, and feeling responsible for the fights and arguments that have happened in their homes, um, feeling guilty and confused about allowing someone who has hurt their parent or hurt them, uh, some other social emotional difficulties, I guess, around hurting other children, um, unable to uh, stay with a group, being over-friendly, parentified. I think in terms of long-term impacts, certainly it's around relationship implications. I think that's, and, um, and yeah, and I think there's research that's just recently come out showing that if there can be early intervention, that means with children under the age of five, that's where the work that really needs to happen is, is sub five in order to prevent as children hit adolescence and that developmental kind of task is they start to then use behaviors and use ways of, yeah, use violence and then get to, then get kind of labeled um, or get called, get are called perpetrators as well. So as adolescents who are in fact, you know, responding to to those are the develop, you know, the long term developmental impacts, and then so begins that intergenerational cycle all over again. And I think that's that's the yeah, that's really tricky. And I think also the long term impacts of on as I said earlier, the relationship between the parent and the child. And then you you will find very often mothers who've been the victim survivor um, and who've been the, um, find later on child then they will then the child will you know possibly start using violence and the mother will then feel like the child's turned on them it's all those very very complex um mother child dynamics yes you know? i mean it is it is absolutely it's so distressing but you 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 point out such terribly important very often overlooked aspects of this whole experience and in particular the shame and the confusion the shame that children um, feel that this awfulness has happened in their home and they might catch a glimpse of another of a, of a child at school that has another sort of home where perhaps this doesn't happen hopefully but I think we we underestimate the level of shame and confusion and I think all of the things you mentioned makes me feel in some despair about how children like this can end up with a diagnosis of ADD and HDHD because I think, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not in favour of that diagnosis in general, and I think it's a disposal diagnosis for children. Um, and it's really a way of foreclosing. I mean, once you give children that kind of diagnosis, you're basically stopping looking. You're not looking at what's actually going on. Um, uh, and it's a way of, of, in a way, protecting the professional from, you know, they can just sideline the child into a medico-type diagnosis that often has very little meaning, but they don't really want to look at and be faced with the true trauma of what the child has experienced. I think another aspect of what you're talking about is for children that is also part of the shame and confusion is the normalizing of highly aggressive behaviors. Yes. You know, that, that is the that's part of the currency of ordinary family life on a daily basis. Yeah. That really seeps right into the system. It seeps into the body of the child. 
and and it would be not very surprising, you know, as you point out, that the danger is that they would repeat this mm. in relationships, either with peers, friendships, and then later on in other relationships, and that the it, being able to understand and go below the surface to understand the truth of this is absolutely vital in being able to help these children and indeed their parents. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I know from my contact with your service that your staff are multi-talented and use different kinds of therapy, such as art therapy, music, play, and sensory-based activities. Can you let us know how these approaches are used and, if possible, in what sort of situations? Yes, indeed, I think they are. I think they are multi-skilled and multi-talented. Um, and everyone in the team is trained in different uh, creative arts therapy modalities. So we have art therapists, drama therapists, music therapists, and we have what we call kind of more general creative arts therapists that work across modalities. So instead of the usual, I guess, psychotherapeutic dyad, there's a is there's a triad. So there's a working through something else. So it's a working through either an image or an art piece, something that's created. Um, um, or, an, or art making, uh, a story, maybe a story's made, uh, a role, creating a role, working with small objects, a kind of dramatic projection, maybe a song, um, and also just generally through play. So we use the creative modalities and creative arts therapies are there's a whole body of research and a whole body of um, you know, knowledge and theory that goes alongside them um, that's, that's out there. But using the creative modality within a therapeutic relationship, I guess, to inform and improve physical, mental, emotional, psychological well-being. And there's a lot of research that's gone into creative interventions and creative therapies in trauma work, particularly, and I know later, um, yeah, we'll talk to how also might sit in the body. Uh, but creativity and play within the arts therapies are seen as core processes of change, where um, I guess we acknowledge that the, there's to tap into something creative is to tap into something really quite well. And there's also it's very kind of deep and unconscious, but there's something quite healthy in that. There's tapping into that, that kind of um, we kind of recognize as being, yeah, I guess healthy. Um, and what we also know with children who are, who are traumatized is often their play is affected. So they, they might not play or they might struggle to play. Um, and so we might consider the developmental trajectory of play and how play progresses for a child along with it, with their developmental kind of, kind of um, stages. And we might notice that a child is particularly kind of caught up in one particular kind of um, type of play and we might work then to kind of move, move the child through that. Um, or we might work... Um, for example, with a young a young person who really engages with music, as many young people do, we might work with them to create or write a song that might be something for one of their parents or something for for a friend or someone else. But that kind of the art or the song or the drama or the story becomes a container for the experience. So for both the expression as well as for the experience, um, and so that. Children and young people and adults, I guess, are able to, in a way, externalize what might be happening through a metaphor, I guess, and it becomes a safe way 
to process experiences from a distance. And that's how the arts therapies work. So it's, um, and, and, and it doesn't mean that you just do that and, and kind of walk away. The therapist is there working to make meaning in the here and now, um, working alongside, um, offering choice and control in terms of materials that might be used, but there's an active element. So there is integration that happens, but it, it, it takes time. Um, yeah. And it's about it's more about the process and I guess the end product. That's really important. Yes. And also, so while it's happening individually, what the arts allow, what the creative arts therapies allow is they offer allow often, well, they do allow for great relationship making as well. So there's lots of shared activities and processes that we can do with a parent and child together. It's not about now oh, let's talk about what's going on, let's do this and the talking will come. And it comes out. I mean you know, in play, children tell you every, you know, they tell you it's in the artwork, it's in the story that's made about a character, you know, very well is about the child and their experience. And then it's, you know, the therapist making the links um, for them. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I think that's fa absolutely fascinating. Um, because what you're really talking about is the, the presence <clears throat> of the third entity um, the crucial presence of the third entity. And this also leads beautifully into my next question, which is that um, uh, I just wanted to say that from my own experience of working as a child psychotherapist, that children who've experienced trauma don't immediately want to talk about it. Sometimes they don't have the um, words to describe their experience. And as the trauma expert Bessel van der Kolk explained, their body ends up speaking about their trauma in various ways. So the experience becomes literally embedded. or So you, you can end up with children who are completely silent. But um, this doesn't mean that they don't have things to say. And that's why I think your approach and the element of the, th the third element is absolutely amazing. I mean, it's such a creative way of working, hugely creative. And it's also about sharing and having input. Um, so I just wonder about your thoughts in relation to that and in relation to the, the my comment that that I don't I find with children who are heavily traumatized they can't immediately be engaged I mean we can't sit down and have a conversation about you know would you agree with that absolutely I think children come in so full of so much and they are so in their bodies it's all in the body and you have to start with the body so it might be just purely just coming into the space and 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 breathing and just or just doing and giving you know something else but absolutely it's about I, I completely agree with you Ruth and I think I think that um yeah it can't be in, it, it's got to kind of it's got to be worked through the body so um I guess with the arts therapies you know, the embodiment is always there at the beginning and because whatever as soon as you engage with an activity be it through play or through play or through doing there's always a felt there's arousal so and then and then that gets turned into kind of it gets externalized and put into something else and then I guess one can step back and have a look at it when one's feeling a little bit more kind of um I guess, more in a space to think, more kind of regulated. And that won't necessarily happen all in one session. That can happen over a number of different sessions. That that, but the first task might well be just soothing the body, just being in being in one's body and just finding finding how to breathe again for both parent and child. And sometimes doing doing or blowing bubbles, um, you know, doing that together for parent and child can also be a really, really lovely joining thing to do for them. 
and fun, you know, kind of joyful as well. Yes, I mean, that's so fascinating. And you use a very important term, which is about regulation and regulating, because part of the process, part of the problem for many of these children and their parents is that everything has become so dysregulated. I mean, dysregulated and dysregulation has become the norm. It's the normalization of violence and dysregulation. So how do you help to set children off on the path of being able to find some kind of core regulation in themselves and it sounds so interesting you know the the it's the relationship with the worker and it's their joint focus on the third element that they can create together so it's a very interesting mm. notion um we've talked at various times about how the most enduring outcomes for children are so dependent on the engagement of their parents in the therapeutic task but I imagine this is a very complicated area for many of the parents you see because of their own recent traumatic experience of family violence. How do you deal, how does your service tend to work with this kind of dual traumatization? Do you find it helpful to have two therapists involved? Yeah, indeed, it is a very complicated area. And technically, we are not funded to offer individual adult therapeutic kind of support for parents who, as you say, you know, are all trying to recover from their own kind of, ex well, they are trying to recover, recover from their own experience and often, you know, have had from earlier experience as well. It's often not the first time that they've experienced um, family violence. So there's a gap in the services. And I think that that just needs to be acknowledged. Um, I think that it makes sense it would make sense to be able to work with both with a dual kind of traumatization. I think we hold it in mind all of the time and we will name some of that for the parents. So lots of the, the therapists will offer a few sessions and we might work with the parents and the child all of the, the whole way through um, the treatment we're offering, or we might offer a few sessions and then do parent, you know, parent feedback and go back to more individual. And we might, might have some space to kind of name some of what might be happening for the for the parents and help the parents see how that might be happening, you know, what the child's presenting and what meaning that, you know, how they how we might 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 make meaning together with that. On occasion, we have seen the need, I mean, I think ideally we should have that. I think it would be fabulous. I think we should be working with a parent, someone working with the parent with the child and coming together. I think that would be that would be the best practice um because yeah so many mothers come in and and aren't able to think about themselves because they're so concerned about their child but what we can see is that actually this is really important you do do some of this processing because in doing that your child actually will be okay um so it's it's so tricky it is so so tricky and then we might refer on but there are very few places to refer and there's lots of wait lists um, we are very lucky we have access to some funding that we might be able to fund um, adults, women, mothers to go off and get some of their own counselling because most of the people who come to us can't afford, um, they all they can't afford anything private, so we would have to support them to do that. Um, and if the times that we have worked with two therapists, it's been very much part of the goal and working around, I guess, a reciprocity um, between parent and child and helping child and parent understand each other's experiences because the mother's 
trauma was just so much that everything the child did, she was responding in a certain way. And the child, you know, it was just a complete, um, it was very explosive all of the time. And that has worked very well, but it does become very um, resource intensive. We have four counselors in the team. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's just, it's just not enough. But ideally, that would be that. That's what we should are, be doing. Are you saying that the funding for your service wouldn't? It doesn't. Is, is only for children. That it's yes. And, and so, the funding we receive from the Department um, of Fairness, Family, and Housing is um, purely for children. So we are all in order. So it's all um, we have to cut every service we offer. We can count, and that's attached to a funding. Um, funding agreement and it, it has to be children so we do bring parents in and we do do parent sessions you can't do children work without parents well you, you can't i mean what on earth do these funders have in mind i mean i've come across this before in services where uh, children have uh, have had where parents have had very acrimonious divorces or separation issues and then there's this notion that you just work with a child when in fact the child's problem is the parent's problem you cannot work with a child without working with the parents there's this sort of Victorian notion that you can separate a child somehow and do something with a child and then hand them back to parents. And I, I just hope and pray that that sort of attitude is going to change, you know, and that, that your excellent service can also try and influence that in terms of giving feedback. Yes, and I think we have started to, you know, we've put, we've put together um, and we have a Bit of an evaluation program that we've now started to um, roll out, and we're hoping that you know we're starting to capture things in, I guess, more intentional ways to be able to feedback. Because yeah, because it's all about the funding, right? That's the thing. It is about the funding for services mm -hmm. like this. Um, there are not many free services for children and their yes. parents in this. But people need to understand that that you're you're working with partnerships mm. working with the, the child does not exist as a satellite floating around the child and the parents are are the unit and you're working with the system and it's it's extraordinary in this day and age that people can be so unable to understand yeah, that I agree. And, I agree. and really it's not in the best interest of the children no just linking this with a question about the fathers who have been um offenders do you ever support the fathers or do you refer them on or do you have any contact with them? Very important question. Um, and you may, yeah, you, I think you do know that historically our services have been quite separate in the family violence sector. So there's been services for victim survivors and services for people who use violence. So um, traditionally women and men. Um, and, there, there have been moves to change that and trying to kind of shift around a more kind of holistic approach, but I don't think it's quite um, come down to practice yet. Um, there have new laws that are around increased information sharing, particularly around children, where we are meant to be um, across all services that engage with children, sharing information around their well-being and safety. Um, in a kind of a collaborative way, but I think this is taking a long time to to kind of happen, and a lot more kind of input need needs to happen in terms of, I guess, making people aware of all of these kinds of information sharing schemes. So in our program, often 
mostly parent, women will come in with their children. The, the father might be in an intervention order. He might not allow, be allowed to have access with a child. He might be elsewhere. He might be trying to get access with, with the child through the family, whatever might be happening. But we will we wish we could engage more with services like men's behavior change or um, caring dads as a program that's run where we could be sharing information because there are times where, where certain risks kind of reemerge and we think this is not safe for this child to be seeing this father at this time mm -hmm. because now access or supervised access has, has, has recommenced, but we don't know where to go. And um, we don't know where, we don't know how to find out who is working with with him, so we we are able to seek information if we ha we are concerned around, um, I guess if there's an intervention order, so around any of the justice system stuff or the mm -hmm. police or the courts, but not in terms of where of services. And I think the men's services feel equally isolated, like they would love to have more access with children's services, but it's like there's something that's happening that we're not able to find out who each other is. And I know often we'll get referrals from child protection and. Once again, the, the 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 emphasis and the the focus falls on the mother. What is the mother doing? Is she engaging protectively? And the father's just off the out of the picture. And we'll say, well, what's happening with him? And sometimes they say, oh, we can't find him, or he's not answering the phone. But once again, she has to not only recover from what's happened to her, but be responsible for making everybody else recover and her children. Um, and it's very, very, very difficult. It's very, very frustrating. Um, we did have funding in our organization a few years ago where we were funded as a pilot program to run an all-of-family where we had uh, father and mother and children all coming and they wanted to stay together because we also know that there's a great percentage of people who leave a relationship but want to go back to the relationship for many different reasons. It's, you know, and it's much better for the child if we are able to engage both parents and that that also was intense resource intensive in terms of we had a therapist working with a mother trauma therapist working with a father because of course he's got his story too um and with a child and then family therapy but no we the funding was pulled so and i think it was showing some quite positive um quite positive outcomes and family certainly saying we want to go somewhere we know their difficulties we you know but we want to work on this and it, i don't think it works with this polarized um no adversarial I mean, you know, thing. so much for joined up services and also that yeah. you know this perpetual notion there's never any money and you know i always tell all the but people there is money work somewhere with, a lot of money is a, it's a lot deal of money around it's just not going into your service exactly and, and a lot of important people simply don't understand what the priority is but this is a priority i think everything you're talking about is a priority with all the clamoring and the pain and the suffering and the horror about uh, family violence, um, this is where it starts. You you are offering amazing and and highly insightful options for ways in which to deal with it. And um, politicians and important people and whoever holds the money bags need to hear you and give you. You know you've already proven the the positive result. You don't have to do any more. So I I, th I hope a lot of people are going to listen to this podcast and really look at the situation differently. Mm. Um, and I think that also links in with prevention. There's a huge need for prevention in this area. 
And it must commence, I think, with relationship education at a young age for boys and girls. And I don't mean the sort of limited type of sex education and some of the stuff that really passes for relationship education is because I just don't feel this, this is really addressing key issues. And I also don't think it's something that teachers should have to be involved in. They're very busy people. Um, I, I think it's got to be handled very differently. And I wonder if you have any ideas about, about how this might be carried out. Yeah. I'd change the world if I could, wouldn't I? <laughs> I think, you know, I think it's you're so right. I think, you know, and you've mentioned a couple of times in this in this podcast around the normalization of violence and the normalization of certain behaviors and boys will be boys and that's what they do and mm. you've just got to man up and um I think or woman up in you know or woman up or cases. whatever the gendered the, the whole gendered nature of how you be a girl, how you be a boy. And I think I don't think there are enough conversations happening. I think it's got to happen. And I think not only, you know. I think it's just got to be everywhere, but I think it'd be great to see more more of the parents and the adults kind of, and, um, you know, our, our parliament, you know, people in government. I think everybody needs to start. I, I don't know how we do it, Ruth, but we do need to start engaging in, and I think it needs to be, it can't be didactic. It can't be talking down on people and saying to people, this is, you know, but but how do you engage people in a way that's, I guess that's meaningful, that creates conversation, that allows for messy conversations to happen, but at the same time feels, I guess, valuable and constructive and, I guess, safe enough. Um, I guess I think the arts is one way of doing that in in ways that bring people collectively together. Um, I think, you know, and I think it needs to come from within you know, from within communities, from within organize, from within places where 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 kids are, um, but not only from the bottom up. I think it's also. I think children also have to see adults taking part in these and changing and having conversations, and men stepping out and saying things. Um, yeah, not only always relying on the children to change. Absolutely, absolutely. I I think that is such an important point that you make. I mean, that even happens in, in you know, some of the psychotherapeutic experiences where parents may come and see me as a child psychotherapist and complain about a child as though the child is living in some extraterrestrial space and has very little connection with what's going on. I mean, children speak their families, they speak their lives, exactly. they speak their relationships. And I think it's time that we all had very different conversations. I mean, there's so much hand-wringing and horror about what happens in shocking cases of family violence, and and then it all it quietens down, and not a yeah. lot really is addressed. Yeah. So there are so many opportunities. I think there are lots of terrific people who would be rushing in to fill these gaps, have a lot to offer, and it's not an expensive uh, process. It would save a huge amount of money and pain and suffering. Um, I think you've already addressed... Um, my next question is about um, linking in with other services in the community, but it does seem as though what these families desperately need is a kind of scaffold. They have to be held and contained in the community rather than falling over the edge and somehow disappearing. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, one of my team members just earlier today said, you know, it's almost like we are the... Um, 
the bottom of the stream river kind of service that that often people come to our service and often feels like they've been abandoned by 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 our systems not not just falling through the gaps that actually the systems are there to to sometimes protect some families more than others and certain people you know based on i guess you know race and class and um lots of different kinds of of identities and um yeah what do you do then you know these people are your families arrive and yeah the scaffolding and and something is really really necessary and we find that we often end up being doing much more advocacy case management work than we ever thought we ever would do as, as trained therapists we you know and that's really important that's that's it's it is really important but it's also the thing that i think exhausts because there's so much that goes into that coordination and i think with our service system the way it's it's so siloed and there's not a lot of there's not a lot of coordination and collaboration that really needs to happen with a child and a family in this in this um especially in especially in our context so so much goes on um liaising with lawyers family courts housing you know financial schools other it's it's yeah it's very busy um we do our best to scaffold but it um yeah it's 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 complex work i'm sure it is i suppose a final question um is you know I, you've talked a bit quite a lot about the particular challenges facing you and your colleagues i wonder if you if you could mention say two things that you think mostly need to change um what elements about your work in the family violence sector, do you think, if you can think of two things that are most in need of urgent change? I think, you know, there's so much that's gone into we're making a child centered, there's child safe standards, there's all the talk and the rhetoric. But are we really listening to children? And why can't we just hear? Children are very clear. But how? Do we have a child's voice heard and their needs heard? I think that's, I, and we see that through the courts, Ruth. We see it through, we see how, you know, counseling often gets weaponized. A child's voice, they say what they want and then it gets weaponized against them. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of stuff happening, but it's not happening in practice. And I think often we put these things in place, but it silences our children more, I think. So I guess I, I would love to see children's voices being heard more and, and, and not, just saying we're listening, but really hearing them and let's see some things change. Um, so if I'm going to give another one, um, I think the family court, and I know that that that's a big thing, but I think that's such a big thing in our work is that so often it ends up in family court and understanding that that can often be then be a continuation of the family violence of how those systems continue to then create yeah, havoc and chaos and pain for for the child and 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 for their and for their mother. And I guess it would be great to see. And I know there's there's again moves to trying to change that, but it would be great to see some of that changing and funding. If we could have at least ten more counselors just in our little service, and we have a huge wait list. We just need more money. We need more money and more integrated children's services in this um, yes, sector. Yes, yes. Mm. I, I think thank you very much for that. I think that's so 
um, poignant and so important and in pushing the child right at the center um, uh, and how the how what you end up with with these children is they're sort of doubly traumatized aren't they that the you know apparently well-meaning institutions or services um, they're not setting out to traumatize children, but they end up traumatizing them. Exactly. You know, if you remember one of our last, uh, one of the previous podcasts on the workings of the family court and some of the horrendous things that go on there. Um, so I, I, I'm so pleased you've sort of put the child right in the center, you know, and you've used the term weaponized as though, you know, on the one hand, you, you're desperate for children to give voice and to be heard. And then the terrible notion that what they say, you know, particularly in relation to family violence, that they might say the wrong thing. They might set something terrible off. Or maybe even at home, um, they might say something that creates a trigger in very vulnerable parents. So I think putting the child first is so vitally important. But thank you so much. Uh, Kirsten, for your contribution. It's absolutely fantastic. And I do wish you all the very best with your outstanding work. Thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You may be interested to know about my audio trainings based on the many trainings I have run throughout Australia and overseas. These include training on relationships, attachment and the brain, time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy and skill building in therapeutic work. You can access the details of all my trainings on my website, which is at www.centerforchildandfamily.com. That's A-N-D, so www.centerforchildandfamily.com. Thank you.